Chapter 16 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Nutter. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 16 by Helen Campbell. Life Behind the Bars, A Visit to the Tombs, Scenes within prison walls, ray of light on a dark picture. There are still living a few old New Yorkers who, as children, played about the collect pond. This was a pretty sheet of water about which young people wandered in summer evenings, though it was a long walk from the most thickly built-up portion of the city, then below Fulton Street. From the pond to the North River was swampland, through which ran a little rivulet on a line with the present Canal Street. For years this pond supplied most of the drinking water for the city, but as it served also as sewer and dumping ground, it became plain to the city fathers of that day that something must be done about it. There was strenuous opposition. There always is opposition to the most self-evident need for reform. But the fathers had their way, and the filling up of the pond began. It was a slow process, and required not only countless loads of soil, but anything and everything that could find place on the dumping ground, from old shoes to ashes and sweepings, over which the rag-pickers of the day kept careful oversight. Work as they would, it remained practically a marsh about which malaria under another name lingered persistently, and which the doctors insisted was the cause of most of the ailments current. The filling began in 1817 and went on with intermissions until 1837, when it was chosen as a site for the new city prison, the old one farther down having proved entirely inadequate. Why this spot was chosen, unless to get rid of the prisoners as quickly as possible, no one knew. The plans for the new prison meant not only an enormous expenditure of money, but one of the stateliest of buildings, probably the purest specimen of Egyptian architecture out of Egypt, and magnificent in proportions. Yet this building, occupying an entire block, is dwarfed and made insignificant by being sunk in a hollow so low that the top of the massive walls scarcely rises above the level of the Broadway, hardly more than a hundred yards distant. Constant anxiety attended the building. The soil was so marshy that the walls settled, and though the foundations were much deeper than ordinarily laid, it was regarded as very doubtful if they would ever support the weight of the mass erected upon them. By 1840 the work was complete, and save for the darkening of the stone by time no change has taken place. It is of solid granite, 253 feet long by 200 deep, and appears as one lofty story, the windows being carried from a point about six feet above the ground up to beneath the cornice. The main entrance on Center Street is reached by a flight of dark stone steps, which lead to a portico, massive and gloomy, supported by four enormous Egyptian columns. The other three sides are broken by projecting entrances and columns. Its name of the tombs was the natural outcome of the feeling of all who looked upon it. Year after year, successive grand juries condemned the building as totally unfit for its purposes, and even today an occasional remonstrance is heard. It was built to accommodate about 200 prisoners, but double that number are now confined in it. 
armed with the permit without which there is no admission for the curious one is passed through the heavy gate at the north at which an old warden keeps guard from half-past ten in the morning to half-past one in the afternoon are the hours for visitors and a motley crowd assembles as the hour approaches most of them bearing brown paper bags and bundles designed for the consolation of the prisoners these are examined to see that they contain no hidden files or anything forbidden and are delivered later each man as he passes in is examined at the inner gate and each woman by a woman who sits just inside a little room one is tempted to pause here and watch the row now and then comes a weeping mother all unused to such company or a wife who will not believe the punishment of her loved one deserved once within the visitor finds himself in a large courtyard and facing a second prison built in the centre one hundred and forty-two feet long by forty-five feet deep and containing one hundred and fifty cells this is the male prison quite separate from that for females and connected with the outer building by a bridge which long ago received the name of the bridge of size over it walked all condemned prisoners on their way to their death the gallows meeting their eyes as they passed out into daylight in capital cases the putting up of the gallows was delayed to the last and the muffled sound of the hammers reached the murderer in his cell and stirred a ripple of excitement among the other prisoners such windows as look out upon the courtyard were obstructed by great sheets hung before them and the scaffold was immediately taken down when all was over over that bridge they come said the old warden to me on the occasion of a recent visit nodding his head as he pointed fifty year nearly i've seen em come that row of cells behind you is murderer's row and there used to be an iron cage where they put em ten days before the sentence was to be executed there they put every man as was to be hanged and they gave him a brand new suit of clothes and all to eat he wanted but they stopped that a good while ago then they kept him in his cell and watched him day and night to keep him from suiciding maybe and when the time come they tied his hands and they tied his feet and they put the black cap on his head and the rope round his neck with the noose a hanging down behind and he come along and it went flop 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 as he come and then that will do i exclaimed i do not want to hear any more the old man's eyes opened with surprise why there's many a one would give a v any day yes and more too to get in and see it but they ain't allowed you wouldn't maybe but most would and it's a sight to see one leaves the yard gladly passing into the male prison which contains a lofty but narrow hole with four tiers of cells opening upon the floor and three iron galleries one above the other the cells opening from them are intended for two prisoners but often hold three and all are watched by two keepers for each gallery each tier has its special use the ground floor cells generally containing the convicts under sentence on the second floor are the prisoners charged with grave offences murder arson etc prisoners arrested for burglary grand larceny and the like are on the third tier and light offenders have the top floor to themselves the boys prison is on the centre street side and on leonard street is the women's prison where fifty cells prove insufficient for the demand made upon them the large hall on the franklin street side once used as a station house for the police of the district is now known as bummers hall 
and in it are confined the tramps, vagrants, and persons arrested for drunkenness in the streets. They are kept there until the morning after their arrest, when they are brought up for trial. The center street side contains also the offices and residence of the warden, the police court, and the court of special sessions. Directly over this entrance are six large cells for the use of those who can afford to pay for them, and forgers, defaulters, and prisoners from the higher walks of life wait here till their cases are determined. All who enter from whatever rank are under the charge of the warden, two deputy wardens, a matron, and a sufficient force of keepers to watch and guard the prisoners. As at the workhouse, most of the work is done by prisoners, thirty boys being constantly employed. The place is spotlessly clean, all scrubbing being done by the boys, while others are busy in the kitchen, from which abundant rations are sent out. Changes of clothing are supplied by their families, or, if too poor for this, the city furnishes them. Each one must walk for an hour a day in the corridor outside his cell. In short, the routine is that of the ordinary prison anywhere in the country, and in spite of the unhealthy location of the tombs, its sanitary arrangements are so good that no case of disease has ever originated in it. For over thirty years, one woman, Mrs. Flora Foster, was matron for the women's and boys' prisons, and took general charge of the multitude of babies brought in with drunken or criminal mothers. Long habit had made her an almost unfailing judge of possibilities for her charges, and many a boy owes his first chance in life to her efforts and encouragement. The most violent were made calmer at her approach, and she had unbounded influence over the women who came under her care. There were many, for fifty thousand prisoners passed through the tombs in the course of a year. In spite of constant vigilance and the immense strength of the building, escapes have sometimes taken place, the most noted of these being that of the murderer Sharkey, who escaped in women's clothes provided by his wife, who also gave him her visitor's ticket that he might pass the guards. Since this feat, no prisoner has ever succeeded in evading them, and the number of escapes altogether is hardly a dozen. An hour in the tomb's police court is full of strange experience. Here may be found any morning during the year a pitiable array of poverty-stricken men, women, and children in what are called the prison pens. Arrested for minor or greater offences, all are promiscuously mingled, and no physiognomist could detect, after a night's lodging in the dreary cell of a station-house, the slightest difference between the innocent and the guilty. One by one they are arraigned before the magistrate, who calmly listens to the tale of the policeman, the only witness, perhaps, and excuses or condemns, as the case may be, with apparently the utmost nonchalance. Poverty is here a great factor in the determination of a case, for the very poor have no friends, not even the saloon-keeper or the politician, and influence on their behalf is an unknown quantity, for the simple reason that there is no probability of value ever being received for it. The justice who sits here knows his offenders so thoroughly that he is a terror to every old sinner who comes before him, each one of whom knows that the transgressions of his past are recorded in that unfailing memory, and are likely to be laid before him. Nine o'clock is the time fixed for opening court, but it is tolerably certain one will have to wait half an hour or so, nor is the time lost, 
for under the watchful eyes of half a dozen policemen the hall with its rows of wooden seats fills up with friends of the arrested prisoners who often are to be the witnesses for or against shyster lawyers or a class peculiar to the tombs ready to defend a prisoner for anything they can get from fifty cents to as many dollars wander up and down the room eyeing the people and sending out those who may be persuaded into accepting their services here are women with black eyes in fact the woman without a black eye is in the minority tramps from the contingent in city hall park small boys who steal in under the pretense of belonging to the prisoner and who watch the proceedings with delight chinese and all sorts of conditions of men the justice enters swiftly and silently and is in his place before anyone has noticed him the doors of the bummers hall open and struggling one by one come the row of offenders chiefly drunk and disorderly cases in which assault and battery play a large part near us sits a respectable-looking woman certainly sixty years old who tells her story to all near her in fact this is one of the peculiarities of the place each one in turn and sometimes half a dozen together recite their autobiography and in some cases take pride in the number of times they have had occasion to appear here not so with yonder woman who wraps her shawl close about her and looks around distrustfully as well she may for at her back and moving by slow degrees toward her is the husband against whom after forty years of endurance she has at last decided to enter complaint he has slept in the gutter it is plain and even now he believes that if he can argue with her a little the complaint will be dismissed as he edges toward her the policeman appears listens for a moment and then hustles him off while the old lady says with many sniffs and sobs it do seem a bit hard but he's drunk up all the bits of things over and over and i've no strength to keep on earning money for him to throw into the gutter he is the best of men when he's sober and never laid his hand on me but he isn't ever sober hardly and so it do come hard inside the rail a dozen women look appealingly toward the justice or defiantly toward the audience case after case is called with a promptness amazing to the beholder and dismissed with equal celerity here a child so small that he has to be lifted up for a moment of observation by the judge there old hags some of them lifelong offenders to-day there were three who could easily have sat for the witches in macbeth two were lame one had only a single eye and all had been in the gutter and bestowed scratches and bites freely on each other and on the policeman who brought them in short is the hate i was drunk with judge your honour said the one-eyed woman do you think now judge your honour i'd be drinking after all the warnings i've had from you three months on the island was the only answer she received and she was led out shaking her matted locks and swearing vengeance when out again five italians came up in a group one minus the end of his nose he declined however to press the charge saying it was purely a friendly affair and a woman nearby confirmed his statement go into baxter street if you want to know the truth she said they are always at showing at each other's noses and none of them minds and mourns some minds a black eye there were sadder cases than these young girls homeless and betrayed children whose only home had been the streets sailors still sodden with drink beaten and robbed with no knowledge of by whom and for each and all swift justice did its work 
first offences are dealt with leniently, but there is no time for investigation of special ones. No philanthropist goes down to the tombs for the purpose of hearing the tales of destitution and misery daily rehearsed there. No society takes sufficient interest in humanity to institute an inquiry into and prevent this daily cloud over the brightness of civilization. No church, by its authorized offices, visits the filthy dens and rookeries of the sixth and tenth wards, or the courts and prisons where the victims of necessity are condemned and punished and attempts a reformation of the evils found there. For six years one woman, who has persistently shrunk from notice, has done here a work never before undertaken there by a man or woman. In these six years she has given bail for hundreds of cases, the sum now amounting to over $50,000. Moved to it in the beginning by a knowledge of the utter friendlessness of many who were wrongfully charged, or had been tempted and fallen for the first time, she appeared in her first case in behalf of a lad of nineteen who had sought unavailingly for work and in despair at last attempted suicide. Bail was given, work found, and the gratitude of the lad, now a successful businessman, was so stimulating that Mrs. Schaffner, in spite of her retiring temperament, kept on. Today she is allowed free access to prisoners, and her almost unerring instinct, added to experience, makes it impossible for them to deceive her. Each day she visits the tombs, and once a month gives a day to Sing Sing. Why will not more do so? she said in her pretty German English, her soft voice and gentle eyes hardly indicating the strength of character and endurance she has shown. Do you know it is elegant work? Yes, elegant work. Each day you see some fruit. Because of that there is nothing like it. I wonder often why rich people who say there is nothing to do do not do this and have much pleasure. I care not for institutions. I like better to see my individual in the face and do what I can when I have listened and made up my mind. It is all kinds I help. Yes, all kinds. Black, white, Chinese, all nations, and never but once did any deceive me, and he was my own countryman. Was not that a shame? But I go on, and the district attorney who said first, Madame, you're crazy, say now, Madame, I thank you for much help, and may the Lord send more like you. This is different, you see, but he has reason, for always I know if the prisoner be innocent or be guilty. And, oh, such tales I hear, it would break hearts to hear such tales if there were no help, but always there can be a little. This and the work of the old matron rank side by side in wisdom and discrimination. And safe for this, there is no other bright spot for the tombs, whose grey walls are a menace to the criminal, yet most often an unheeded one, till the clutch of the law is felt and the judge pronounces sentence. Ludlow Street Jail is quite as widely known, and as the county prison for New York has sheltered many notable prisoners. Everyone arrested under process issued by the sheriff of the county of New York is brought here, and majority being arrested for debt. Prisoners from the United States courts are also sent here, and all alike suffer extortions of every kind. In spite of spasmodic attempts to better the condition of things, bribery and corruption seem inseparably associated with this prison. No favors are granted unless paid for liberally, and even where lawful charges are known, it makes no difference. In the case of a debtor who wishes to give bail, 
he is taken by the deputy sheriff to the sheriff's office from whence he sends for any friend likely to become a surety the law allows him a reasonable time to find bail but to leave the office he must fee a deputy enormously the amount demanded being in proportion to the prisoner's probable means so it goes on through every item of the process from signing the bond to the fee of the notary periodical exposure of these and other kindred practices have had thus far small effect on the system and the prison has the unenviable notoriety of being the centre of shameless corruption of every order smaller courts are held at many points and the stranger often wanders into essex market court or that at jefferson market watching the miserable creatures the supply of which is perennial and who are gathered up nightly at all the points where vice congregates whether east or west the cells at these stations are filled with men women and boys the latter taking every lesson in crime from their elders for all the courts the story is much the same one alone owns an alleviation hardly possible for the rest and certainly unique of its kind at the prince street station is a beautiful water spaniel the property of one of the men which enters into the life with the greatest spirit a young italian bootblack has taught him many tricks and he obeys with the docility of a well-trained child he abhors solitude and if left alone with the door closed upon him he rises on his hind feet and diligently paws the knob of the door to the room where the reserve forces it till it turns when he marches in wagging his tail triumphantly a recent exploit made him a member of the force and added the policeman's shield to his collar leo does not make friends readily and follows no one in the street but the sergeant and one of the policemen on one of the policeman's rounds about nine o'clock one evening he heard the loud cry of stop thief and saw a burly negro spring from some steps and run along the street the policeman started after him but leo was far in advance and soon buried his sharp teeth in the leg of the thief oh lord take off the dog take off the dog i give up groaned the negro dropping his plunder and dancing with pain the policeman released him though with some difficulty and leo walked by his side to the station and stood looking on gravely till the prisoner had been committed to his cell he's got so as he smells out a thief soon as he sees him said a shrewd-looking old man who stood by the other day as the dog went through his tricks it wouldn't never do turn him loose in society again for in a city like new york he'd make damaging exposures see i wish then there was ten thousands like him said his companion explosively there ain't a spot in the city but what needs detectives and i'm sick to my marrow of all the horrors i've seen why don't the lord descend on it and make an end because when all's said and done there's a heap of good in it and that's the summing up for most things said the old man and went his way more criminals pass each year before the recorder smith than any other judge in the world he is a hard-working painstaking and withal tender-hearted judge the visitor to his courtroom on a busy day is astonished at the rapidity with which he dispatches business and one who knows nothing about his methods is led to believe that his only object is to get through with his work no matter what becomes of the prisoners it is the greatest mistake one could make said the recorder 
I have to hurry my work, for my court is overcrowded, but never in all my experience on the bench have I been so hurried that I could not give all the time and attention that was necessary to the prisoners. When a man or a woman comes up before me, whom I have never seen before, whose looks or manners give indication that they are not really criminals at heart, I suspend the judgment in their case until the matter is thoroughly investigated. Of the scores of cases of men who have come before me and pleaded guilty, not knowing really what they were doing, but anxious to get out of further trouble by taking a sentence and hiding themselves away in prison, I recall one that I shall remember as long as I live. I could not forget it if I would, for the man in the case writes to me regularly, comes to see me when convenient, and never ceases to thank me for my good offices in his behalf. I was sitting on the bench one morning, and has disposed of a number of ordinary cases, when the court officer presented me a respectable-looking man of about fifty, charged with burglary. I looked at him very closely, and he seemed to be a little above the ordinary grade of prisoner. There was something about his face that irresistibly drew me to him. He looked me steadily in the eye, without brazen effrontery, and seemed only too anxious to have sentence passed upon him and get into prison. "'You are charged with burglary, my good man,' I said to him. "'What have you to say?' He looked up at me in an innocent way, and with tears streaming down his face, said huskily, "'Nothing. I am guilty.' "'Do you know the meaning of that word, guilty?' I asked him. "'Yes,' he replied, "'fully.' I broke into my employer's store. I stole his jewelry. I pawned it, and that is all there is of it.' Pass sentence upon me, if you will. Send me to prison, and let not my shame be visited upon my wife and daughter. Have you any counsel? I asked him. No, was the reply. I have no counsel, and need none. I am guilty. Sentence me now. The whole thing was so unusual that I determined to remand him. You may go back to prison, I said to him, and remain there for a week. Meantime, think over what you have done. You are not called upon to say you are guilty, and if you do say so, know that there is no alternative but state prison. Burglary is a heinous offence. Better go back, think it all over, change your plea, send for your friends, and see if something cannot be done for you. When court was over, I called in one of my detectives, told him to go to the head of the firm where this man worked, and whose store he had broken into, and tell him that I wished to see him. Then I sent for the poor man's wife, and little by little the story came out. The poor woman, between her sobs and tears, told it all. Her husband was a loving, hard-working, industrious man. He had only one object in life, his love for his daughter. She had a consuming ambition to become a great musician. He had spent all the money he had made on her musical education, and had really kept himself not only poor, but in debt by so doing. It seemed that she had almost gained her object, and become not only a good singer, but a fine pianist, when she went to her father and said that it would be necessary for her to take another course of instruction with a distinguished teacher. The poor man had not a dollar in the world. He was only a working man on small wages, and the money required for this instruction was something that he could not hope to get in the natural course of events. He brooded over it for a few days talked with his wife about it, and finally, after many ineffectual efforts to raise the money in other directions, 
he came home one saturday night with the desired sum in his hands he was as happy as a schoolboy his face was all aglow and his eyes danced with joy he kissed his daughter gave her the money and told her to go on success was now assured the young woman never for a moment asked where the money came from but after the frugal supper was over the good wife took her husband aside and asked him where he got the money he evaded her for a long time and finally suspecting that he had not come by it honestly she charged him directly with obtaining it by false means or foul hour after hour she pleaded with her husband to tell her the truth he steadfastly refused at last at midnight he could stand it no longer and in an agony of despair he broke down and told her that he had broken into the establishment where he had worked taken some valuable jewelry and pawned it the poor wife was half crazed but she was a brave woman and she told him between her sobs that although she valued her daughter's education and happiness in life she could not be his partner in crime she prevailed upon him to accompany her and that night those two unhappy people walked the streets until they reached the home of the senior member of the firm whose store the man had robbed the woman nervously rang the bell and they waited until at last the door was opened once inside the house she bade her husband tell all and he explained with bent head how the theft had been committed and told where he had pawned the stolen goods the wife handed over the money realized on the property asked the employer to redeem his goods and forgive her husband you would think that any man would have been touched by the poor woman's sturdy honesty and bitter tears in that midnight hour but this employer was unmoved he deliberately called a policeman and had the man taken to jail the merchant recovered his goods and the law was about to take its course with the criminal when i sitting on the bench there was convinced that there was a story behind it all and i decided to investigate the case i shall never forget how eloquently that poor woman pleaded for her husband that day in my presence and how stubbornly the unfeeling employer who sat opposite to her demanded with true shylock persistence the last pound of flesh i suggested to the merchant that the case was a peculiar one and it seemed to me presented an opportunity for mercy as well as justice you had better decide i said to him not to prosecute this poor fellow he has never before been accused of any crime he has worked faithfully for you for many years he is deserving of some consideration from your hands and this woman his wife who was strong enough to right a wrong at any cost to herself and family is deserving of her husband's presence and support in her declining years the woman thanked me and had hardly done so when the merchant arose and in an angry tone said that he was determined to make an example of this man he insisted that prisons were for just such persons as he and that the sooner he was placed there the better i allowed him to talk in this way for perhaps ten minutes and i listened carefully to all he said i don't believe i replied that this man intended to commit a crime as a judge i am empowered to suspend sentence i shall call him up in court to-morrow shall tell him i have investigated the matter thoroughly and shall suspend sentence in his case now this is the strangest part of the story the man was brought before me the next morning and withdrew his plea of guilty i suspended sentence 
some good people that i knew obtained enough money to enable his daughter to finish her musical education and she is now well known in new york's best musical circles i obtained a position for her father as purser on one of the outgoing steamships and he is as honest as the day is long and as grateful as a man can be for the service i rendered him while his employer has since been brought up in another court in this city for fraudulent practices and narrowly escaped state prison for his crime. End of chapter 16